0: where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for all things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show.
1: Eclipsed by the monarch he deposed, Richard III, by the glamor and notoriety of his wife killing son, Henry VIII, and the charisma of his granddaughter, Elizabeth I. Yet Henry VII is possibly the most extraordinary story of them all. With a hunger for power and an iron determination to hang on to the throne at all costs, he would rewrite history, seizing the crown and rebuilding the monarchy in his own image. He would become paranoid, described later as an infinitely suspicious ruler, a dark prince, his reign seen as a bleak, wintry landscape. For years, I've explored his murky story of spies and informers, intrigue and extortion. And I've found that the deeper you go, the more you discover fascinating glimpses of this manipulative king, who created one of the strangest regimes in history. Magnificent, oppressive and terrifying. This is the story of Henry VII, the first Tudor. This is Henry. It's what remains of his funeral effigy, which was paraded through the streets of London after his death, dressed in his parliament robes and clutching his auburn sceptre of state. We can see his fine-boned features and the distinctive cast in his left eye. But this is also a face emaciated and ravaged by illness and stress. It's the face of a man who's never known a moment's peace. Henry's journey to fulfil his unlikely destiny brought him to Milford Haven on Sunday the 7th of August, 1485. His small fleet appeared from the south and anchored quietly in Mill Bay. Henry's ships drop anchor here and his men come ashore and we can picture them heaving munitions onto the beach, cannons, horses coming through the surf. Henry wades ashore, and as he gets to this beach, to the sand, he sinks to his knees, raises his eyes to heaven, clasps his hands in prayer and says, Judge me, O Lord, and favour my cause. Henry would need all the help he could get. His army was a ragtag bunch of political dissidents and foreign mercenaries. A mixture of different accents filled the air. Henry had deliberately chosen this windswept and distant corner of Wales. He wanted to slip in undetected, giving him time to raise support in his Welsh homeland before facing Richard III's much larger army. And so this invasion really feels, more than anything else, it feels almost not like an invasion, it feels very kind of furtive and anxious. He knows that the odds are stacked against him. Henry made his way northwards to the homeland of his stepfather, Lord Stanley. The Stanleys, a powerful noble family, had half-promised Henry their support. The plan was to make for London, but Richard's army was now hot on his heels. He had no choice but to turn and fight. On the eve of battle, Henry knew Richard's army was only a few miles away, and that it massively outnumbered his own. It had come down to this. Tomorrow he would claim the throne of England, or he would die trying. Early on the morning of 22 August 1485 Henry advanced from over here towards Richard's much bigger army drawn up on the ridge. Over here was Sir William Stanley with his men, watching as the battle unfolded. Stanley was keeping his options open. He only wanted to back a winner. Seeing Henry's army fragmented, Richard spotted his chance and charged. In the carnage, the two men fought nose-to-nose, and Henry's standard-bearer was cut down. And it was at this moment, probably as he saw Henry's standard begin to topple, that Sir William Stanley made his fateful decision. At the crucial moment, Stanley's army piled in on Henry's side. Richard, it was said, fought valiantly, like a true king. One of Henry's men reportedly heard him shout, ''I will die like a king this day, or win!'' And Richard himself was swept away. Richard III, the King of England, was viciously battered to death. By mid-morning, it was all over. Henry's men moved busily about the battlefield, relieving the dead and dying of their valuables, piling bodies onto carts. On a nearby hill, Lord Stanley placed the dead king's circlet on Henry's head to the shouts of acclamation from his troops. Against all odds, Henry had achieved the impossible. This man, who had been a refugee and fugitive half his life, had won the crown of England. The Battle of Bosworth may have been over, but the real struggle was about to begin. For over half a century, no monarch had passed on the crown without turmoil. Building a dynasty would be a battle that Henry would fight for the rest of his life. Off my shoes because I'm about to tread on what is one of the most extraordinary pieces of medieval art, not just in England but in Europe. This is amazing. It feels astounding to stand here. Every single English king, and queen for that matter, since 138, has been crowned on this spot, precisely here. And it was here, on the 30th of October, 1485, that Henry VII was crowned. It was a glorious, triumphant occasion, and Henry must have felt as though he'd achieved Almost the impossible this was an affirmation of his victory at Bosworth. It was a vindication of everything that he 'd done that he 'd prayed for on the beach at Milford Haven. but there was perhaps a sense too of something else after all, Henry had seen a crowned king, Richard the Third killed despoiled mutilated and trussed naked on the back of a donkey without so much as a rag to cover his genitals and he knew that what had happened to Richard III could also happen to him Henry's claim to the throne was precarious his mother Lady Margaret Beaufort provided the only trickle of royal blood in Henry's veins. The Beauforts were a great but illegitimate Lancastrian family, banned from ever claiming the throne. On the other side of his family, Henry's grandfather, Owen Tudor, a fast-talking Welsh servant, had secretly married Henry V's widow, Catherine, some 50 years previously. Not exactly the ideal pedigree for a king. Henry was born a nobleman, the Earl of Richmond. But his upbringing in exile had left him with no experience of governing. It had made him a sharp observer and a man who gave nothing away. For England to believe that Henry was the rightful king, he would need to behave like one. And that is exactly what he did. Parliament has met at Westminster for over 800 years. The official records of its debates, meetings and acts stretch back to the Middle Ages. In early November 1485, Henry VII's first Parliament met. He would use it to tackle the inconvenient truth of Richard III's reign and to rework recent events to suit himself. And here's the written proof, the parliamentary record which shows how he did just that. In this record, Richard III is the usurper, Henry VII is the rightful king putting the record straight. Richard III was referred to as the late Duke of Gloucester and afterwards, indeed, and not of right, King of England. And his legislation is referred to as the act of false and malicious imaginations. But there was one thing in particular during this Parliament that Henry did, which sent a ripple of unease through the Commons. He rewrote history. It simply consists of a date here. Now, the Battle of Bosworth was fought on the 22nd of August 1485. But here, Henry VII has dated his reign the 21st, in Roman numerals, day of August last past. That's to say, the day before the battle was fought. We might ask, what's in a day? Well, by backdating his reign to the day before he beat Richard III and became king, Henry was effectively accusing everybody who had turned out for Richard III on the battlefield of treason. The Commons was shocked, but in practice, there was very little they could do about it. Henry had won his battle, and he was king. And here it is, enshrined in parliamentary record. With Parliament sewn up, Henry's next move would bolster his position further. A marriage to cement all his dynastic ambitions. It was a strategic partnership, the fulfilment of a pact made while he was in exile. The pact on which his invasion was founded. The previous 30 years had seen England torn apart in what would come to be known as the Wars of the Roses the House of Lancaster, represented by the Red Rose, against the House of York, represented by the White Rose. Richard III's coming to the throne in 1483 divided the House of York. He imprisoned his young nephews, two princes, in the tower and proclaimed himself king. The princes were never seen again. Their supporters fled to Brittany where they found the young Lancastrian, Henry, a refugee in exile. They agreed to support Henry's challenge to the throne, but only if he would marry Elizabeth of York, daughter of the late King Edward IV. It would be a union that promised to reconcile a divided England. But Henry needed something to reinforce this union, something that would link this new dynasty with the English crown in the minds of his subjects. So he brought in the decorators. At Westminster, the seat of government, he plastered his family emblems across the walls, ceilings, and windows. They included a symbol so powerful in its simplicity that we still recognize it to this day. This, of course, is a Victorian building, but we can get a sense of how these badges and emblems were deployed and used by Henry. We can still see his mother's badge, the Beaufort Portcullis, and alongside it, the most significant emblem of all, Henry's red rose. Henry's revival of a rather obscure Lancastrian emblem, the red rose, was a masterstroke. What it allowed him to do was to place his own rather sketchy credentials on a par with those of his wife, Elizabeth of York, the White Rose. And together, these two roses would combine to create the most potent and enduring emblem in English royal history. The rose both red and white, the Tudor Rose. Henry was stamping his mark on the nation. But, of course, the Tudor rose could only be truly embodied by an heir. Vital if Henry was to build a dynasty. And Henry would not have to wait long. Named after King Arthur, the mythical King of Britain, Prince Arthur was born early on the rain-lashed morning of the 20th of September, 1486, at Winchester, the legendary seat of Camelot. This is a wonderful and very rare book. It's a songbook from Henry VII's court. And we can see in this songbook a song celebrating Prince Arthur's birth, and it says precisely this I love the rose both red and white, it runs. Is that your pure, perfect appetite? To hear talk of them is my delight. Joyed may we be, our prince to see, and roses three. So, in other words, Arthur was the embodiment of the red and the white rose. He was the Tudor rose incarnate. Henry and Elizabeth were lucky. They would have more children, including another son. Henry was building a myth, that he and his family were the true and rightful royal blood of England. But there were those who just didn't buy it. In fact, they would do their own rewriting of history to expose Henry for the usurper he was. What we have here is a genealogical role. These family trees were owned by kings and noblemen to describe and sometimes invent their glorious ancestries. And it's this part that we're interested in in particular and which tells us why Henry was so very afraid and what he was afraid of. We start here with Edward III, the Plantagenet king, from whom both the Yorkists and the Lancastrians trace their lines of descent. We can see here the Lancastrian line coming down through Henry IV, Henry V, Victor of Agincourt, and Henry VI. And then it stops because the Lancastrians are exterminated. And this thick red line is what this roll believes to be the main line of royal descent and it goes to the Yorkist king, to Edward IV, and to his wife, Elizabeth Woodville. The main line of descent carries on to Richard III. But as we can see, the line runs out. It's actually unfinished. Henry is notably absent. In this glorious vision of English kingship, Henry VII doesn't fit at all. He's squashed in here, and then a thick black line traces his descent all the way up and it goes past the Lancastrian line it's not connected to it significantly and it keeps going and it keeps going up to here not to any king but simply to Owen Tudor a chamber servant so this role was composed for a family who took a very dim view of Henry VI's claim to the throne indeed what was more they believed that they not he were the rightful kings of england the role belonged to a great yorkist family called the de la pooles john de la pool earl of lincoln was related to the late king richard iii and he claimed that richard had named him as his heir to the throne john de la pool earl of lincoln would in fact instigate the first serious rebellion of henry VII's reign in 1487 Lincoln's forces clashed with Henry's troops in the East Midlands. But there would be no dead king as there had been at Bosworth. Henry's battle-hardened army massacred Lincoln's men, and Lincoln himself was slaughtered. Henry had won a decisive victory and removed a genuine Yorkist contender for the throne. With this threat eradicated, he set about consolidating his rule. He looked for new ways to drive home the power and permanence of his reign. Through magnificent architecture. An opulent household. And the thing dearest to his heart.
0: Money. Uh, the these. very first English Gold Sovereign, the very first pound as a coin. Well, wow, this is uh, this is an extraordinary privilege, really, to see these.
1: <laughs> Barry Cook looks after the medieval coin collection at the British Museum.
0: So Henry Seventh is the first person to think, I will create a pound coin, and he gives it this very special name, Sovereign. And what he's doing
1: with the word Sovereign is to say, I am sovereign over my land, yes, part yes, of the whole I mean, he,
0: royal package. This is not a coin anybody uses in their daily lives. It's a way for the king, to show his power and authority, to, to spread his message. So, to put in circulation? Literally, to spread authority. the message. And, and in some ways, the audience for this might not have been so much his own subjects, but, uh, but foreign visitors. So, when ambassadors were visiting, Henry would have given them a kind of royal goodie bag, as it were, and along with them,
1: he would have given them a, a number of these, a, a takeaway souvenir of Hen- Henry's England, as it Absolutely.
0: Well. You, have a, you have a huge, stonking gold coin. Uh, <laughs> what does that tell you about the person who gives it you, in a casual way?
1: Usually, just the head of the monarch was featured. But here, Henry sits full length on a great throne, auburn sceptre in hand and the imperial crown on his head, every bit the image of a king. But the most important part of the coin is on the reverse. This is a Tudor rose,
0: isn't it? Yes, again, the, the tradition in the medieval period, you had a cross on the back of a coin, but now we've got the Tudor double rose and the arms of England superimposed upon it. It's very specifically associating the coat of arms of England with the symbols of
1: the Tudor family, the Tudor dynasty. The two are
0: interlinked, inextricable. is reality um, for power.
1: ...occasion provoked unease. Among the masses that lined the route, craning to catch a glimpse of the princess, was a young legal student called Thomas More. More later described the procession. He'd been enraptured by Catherine. She was so beautiful, he said, that words couldn't do her justice. But he ended on a slightly hesitant note. I do hope, he said, that these celebrations will prove a happy omen. It was as if, in their splendour and magnificence, that the festivities were somehow tempting fate. The wedding was a triumph. The Tudor myth was turning into reality. But as Arthur and Catherine left London to start their married life, it wouldn't be long before Thomas More's words would be fulfilled. Late on the 4th of April, 152, a boat docked at Greenwich, where the King and Queen were in residence. Aboard was a messenger who brought terrible news. Prince Arthur had caught the virulent sweating sickness and was dead. Henry was devastated. On St George's Day, Prince Arthur was laid to rest here at Worcester Cathedral, far away from Westminster, and the glare of international attention. It was a funeral befitting a prince, reflecting the scale of the tragedy. As a requiem mass was sung, through this door, the west door, and through crowds of mourners rode a man on horseback. Wearing Arthur's own plate armour and gripping a poleaxe blade downwards, the man-at-arms rode a black caparisoned warhorse up the nave and into the choir. Arthur's coat of arms, his sword and shield, the symbols of his earthly roles, were offered up and his coffin body was lowered into its grave to have seen the weepings when the offering was done wrote one herald, he had a hard heart that wept not this is Arthur's Chapel his final resting place the political impact of Arthur's death was immense the Tudor dynasty now hung by a thread These books are chamber accounts, they're books of payments, and what's interesting about these books is that they represent Henry's very personal control of finance. These account books are brought to him, and he will look down everything and he will sign it at the bottom. We have everything from, from wages for, for trumpeters, for, for barbers. Queen's minstrels, the prince's trumpeters, falcons brought from Hungary. Falcons brought from Hungary, brilliant. It's quite a journey. Brilliant. Historian Sean Cunningham has been studying Henry's account books. This one shows money coming directly into Henry's personal coffers, and these pages are written by Henry himself. I love this entry in particular. We have um, money delivered in old weighty crowns. You can, you can sense him weighing it in his hand. That's right. Just seeing what. Picking up his weighty crown. Oh, that's good. And then, and then, and then, I like this good crowns. Yeah, this is this is some. These are some good crowns we have here. And it's thousands of pounds worth of bullion going through the king's, yeah. literally through the king's hands. To Henry, money meant security and control, and how he used it was key. There's all sorts of, of unofficial activity going on. You'll have, for example, quite substantial rewards of, of, of tens or maybe hundreds of pounds sometimes being given to, to strangers and reward people from across the sea or certain persons riding on the king's business. And here, this is an interesting one. Sean, who's this? This is Sir Sir Charles. Charles, Probably Sir Charles Somerset. Who was one of the king's masters of intelligence. Yeah, For a man of Flanders. A man of Flanders. Up to, up to something or other on, on official business. Lack of full detail, isn't it, which is a bit frustrating. Well, it's always a giveaway but, though, isn't it? If you, can... if you haven't got the detail, you have a sense that uh, he's on uh, His Majesty's right. Secret Service. Uh... Henry was building up a dense network of spies and informers whose reach would extend into the furthest and darkest corners of the realm. He would map the political loyalties of his subjects putting under surveillance those who looked likely to cause trouble. In 1497, Warbeck, the Yorkist pretender who had caused Henry such anxiety over the years, was captured and eventually executed. As the new century began... Henry VII had been on the throne for 15 years. Only now did he feel truly safe. Things seemed good. Henry completed his magnificent new house on the Thames. This is Henry. It's what remains of his funeral effigy, which was paraded through the streets of London after his death, dressed in his parliament robes and clutching his auburn sceptre of state. We can see his fine-boned features and the distinctive cast in his left eye. But this is also a face emaciated and ravaged by illness and stress. It's the face of a man who's never known a moment's peace. Henry's journey to fulfill his unlikely destiny brought him to Milford Haven on Sunday, the 7th of August, 1485. His small fleet appeared from the south and anchored quietly in Mill Bay. Henry's ships drop anchor here and his men come ashore and we can picture them heaving munitions onto the beach, cannons, horses coming through the surf. Henry wades ashore and as he gets to this beach, to the sand, he sinks to his knees raises his eyes to heaven, clasps his hands in prayer, and says, Judge me, O Lord, and favour my cause. Henry would need all the help he could get. His army was a ragtag bunch of political dissidents and foreign mercenaries. A mixture of different accents filled the air. Henry had deliberately chosen this windswept and distant corner of Wales. He wanted to slip in undetected, giving him time to raise support in his Welsh homeland before facing Richard III's much larger army. And so this invasion really feels, more than anything else, it feels almost not like an invasion. It feels very kind of furtive and anxious. He knows that the odds are stacked against him. Henry made his way northwards to the homeland of his stepfather, Lord Stanley. The Stanleys, a powerful noble family, had half-promised Henry their support. The plan was to make for London, but Richard's army was now hot on his heels. He had no choice but to turn and fight. On the eve of battle, Henry knew Richard's army was only a few miles away and that it massively outnumbered his own. It had come down to this. Tomorrow he would claim the throne of England or he would die trying. The previous 30 years had seen England torn apart in what would come to be known as the Wars of the Roses. The House of Lancaster, represented by the Red Rose, against the House of York, represented by the White Rose. Richard III's coming to the throne in 1483 divided the House of York. He imprisoned his young nephews, two princes, in the tower and proclaimed himself king. The princes were never seen again. Their supporters fled to Brittany where they found the young Lancastrian Henry, a refugee in exile. They agreed to support Henry's challenge to the throne but only if he would marry Elizabeth of York, daughter of the late King Edward IV. It would be a union that promised to reconcile a divided England. But Henry needed something to reinforce this union. Something that would link this new dynasty with the English crown in the minds of his subjects. So he brought in the decorators. At Westminster, the seat of government, he plastered his family emblems across the walls, ceilings and windows. They included a symbol so powerful in its simplicity that we still recognise it to this day. This, of course, is a Victorian building. But we can get a sense of how these badges and emblems were deployed and used by Henry. We can still see his mother's badge, the Beaufort portcullis, and alongside it, the most significant emblem of all, Henry's red rose. Henry's revival of a rather obscure Lancastrian emblem, the red rose, was a masterstroke. What it allowed him to do was to place his own rather sketchy credentials on a par with those of his wife, Elizabeth of York, the white rose, and together these two roses would combine to create the most potent and enduring emblem in English royal history, the rose both red and white, the Tudor Rose. Henry was stamping his mark on the nation. But, of course, the Tudor rose could only be truly embodied by an heir. Vital if Henry was to build a dynasty. And Henry would not have to wait long. Named after King Arthur, a city, Henry had an incredible stroke of luck. He received an unexpected guest at court. In January 1506, Philip of Burgundy the man sheltering the Earl of Suffolk on the continent, was shipwrecked on the coast of England. Seizing the opportunity, Henry welcomed this powerful prince with lavish hospitality, but it was clear that Philip was trapped. Henry would release him only if he agreed to hand Suffolk over. And so in mid-March, a ship carrying the fugitive Earl docked at the Port of London. A heavily armed reception committee marched him to the tower he would never emerge. The threat of Suffolk was finally gone. But two decades spent fending off rebellion, plot and conspiracy had left their mark. This perpetual state of emergency had hardened into a way of rule and England was now in the grip of a system that people found both disorientating and terrifying. Henry's subjects were scared and they were resentful. But they knew that Henry could not go on forever. Closeted away at Richmond, his health had been failing for years. All eyes were on Prince Henry and what sort of king he was going to be. Ever since Prince Arthur's death, the king had wrapped Prince Henry in cotton wool, keeping him confined in the royal household. By 1507. Prince Henry was growing into a brilliant, handsome and athletic teenager but his father's control had begun to chafe. The king, increasingly ill, was only too happy to show off his son. He allowed Prince Henry to organise the spring tournament. The prince would be shown off, but not in the way his father anticipated. Tournaments were spectacular events lasting for days and at their centre were the chivalric superheroes of the age, armoured knights jousting on horseback. But although he was proving a brilliant jouster, Prince Henry was not allowed to fight. His father had already lost one son and wasn't about to lose another. Toby Capwell is the curator of arms at the Wallace Collection and has first-hand experience of the joust
0: there's always risk in anything that's worth doing right and jousting would be pointless if it was completely safe when you you look at what they're fighting with this is a safe one (laughs) this is the safe kind you have three prongs on the head and that prevents the land
1: it was a glorious triumphant occasion and Henry must have felt as though he'd achieved almost the impossible This was an affirmation of his victory at Bosworth. It was a vindication of everything that he'd done, that he'd prayed for on the beach at Milford Haven. But there was perhaps a sense too of something else. After all, Henry had seen a crowned king, Richard III, killed, despoiled, mutilated, and trussed naked on the back of a donkey without so much as a rag to cover his genitals. And he knew that what had happened to Richard III could also happen to him. Henry's claim to the throne was precarious. His mother, Lady Margaret Beaufort, provided the only trickle of royal blood in Henry's veins. The Beauforts were a great but illegitimate Lancastrian family, banned from ever claiming the throne. On the other side of his family, Henry's grandfather, Owen Tudor, a fast-talking Welsh servant, had secretly married Henry V's widow, Catherine, some 50 years previously. Not exactly the ideal pedigree for a king. Henry was born a nobleman, the Earl of Richmond. But his upbringing in exile had left him with no experience of governing. It had made him a sharp observer and a man who gave nothing away. For England to believe that Henry was the rightful king, he would need to behave like one. And that is exactly what he did. Parliament has met at Westminster for over 800 years. The official records of its debates, meetings and acts stretch back to the Middle Ages. In early November 1485, Henry VII's first parliament met. He would use it to tackle the inconvenient truth of Richard III's reign and to rework recent events to suit himself. And here's the written proof the parliamentary record, which shows how he did just that. In this record, Richard III is the usurper. Henry VII is the rightful king, putting the record straight. Richard III was referred to as the late Duke of Gloucester and afterwards in... More also said that the crowning of the new king was like the coming of a new season. But this reference to the seasons also said something else. In fact, it underscored a contrast that Moore emphasized throughout his poem. If there was to be a new spring of joy and freedom, it had to follow a winter of repression and fear. If Henry VIII was the spring, Henry VII had been the winter. Henry VII's funeral cortege processed through London's streets, his effigy displayed on a carriage drawn by five horses draped in black velvet. But for all the criticism of his reign, Henry VII had still achieved what he had set out to do. He had passed on the Crown of England. Westminster Abbey is a national shrine, the burial place of kings politicians, poets and playwrights and this is where Henry the seventh was laid to rest in the chapel he had been building for the past six years it was one of the architectural wonders of the age in the 16th century is Miraculum Orbis Universali, the wonder of the entire world and it really is a staggering building this spectacular mausoleum is Henry's ultimate statement to the world not what we might expect from a wintry miser king So here they are, Henry, buried according to his last will and testament... ...alongside his dearest wife, Elizabeth. These are idealised portraits of Henry and Elizabeth. As they were in their prime, they're intended to be eternal figures of kingship... ...threatened to tear the country apart all over again. Perhaps nothing summed up better the situation that Henry now found himself in... ...than a poem that Thomas More wrote on the occasion of Elizabeth's death. Where are our castles now, Moore's poem read? Where are our towers? Goodly Richmond, soon art thou gone from me. At Westminster, that costly work of yours, mine own dear lord, now I shall never see. Moore was referring to the new chapel Henry VII was building at Westminster Abbey. Adorned with all the familiar symbols of his kingship, the Beaufort Portcullis and the Tudor Rose. The chapel was intended to be yet another monument to the splendour of Henry's dynasty. Thomas More's poem struck at the heart of the matter. Henry could build all the magnificent buildings he wanted, but without his wife, the very foundations of his reign were shaken. Usually so inscrutable, Henry's reaction to Elizabeth's death was one of complete physical collapse. Retreating into the depths of Richmond, he came close to death. But when he emerged six weeks later, the mask was back in place and his drive for control was even more remorseless. The cornerstones of his reign, his wife and heir, were gone and Henry's crown was more at risk than ever. Old enemies had resurfaced. John de la Poole, who had instigated the first rebellion against Henry, had died 15 years before. But his younger brother, the Earl of Suffolk, was now a man, and at large on the continent, raising an army. Increasingly ill, suspicious, and unable to trust people, Henry saw conspiracy at every turn. But his resolve was unshakable. He would hang on to the crown, whatever the cost. If his subjects would not love him, they would be made to fear him. Henry was perfecting a very effective system of repression. His counsellors were experts in extortion. They forced people into bonds and debts to the king to guarantee their good behaviour and find people vast, unpayable sums of money. For everyone, from nobles to merchants, it was like being on permanent bail. Anybody who broke the conditions of these bonds faced financial ruin. Now, betraying the king was not just unthinkable, it was unaffordable. A mixture of different accents filled the air. Henry had deliberately chosen this windswept and distant corner of Wales. He wanted to slip in undetected, giving him time to raise support in his Welsh homeland... ...before facing Richard III's much larger army. And so this invasion really feels, more than anything else, it feels almost not like an invasion. It feels very kind of furtive and anxious. He knows that the odds are stacked against him. Henry made his way northwards to the homeland of his stepfather, Lord Stanley. The Stanleys, a powerful noble family, had half-promised Henry their support. The plan was to make for London, but Richard's army was now hot on his heels. He had no choice but to turn and fight. On the eve of battle, Henry knew Richard's army was only a few miles away, and that it massively outnumbered his own. It had come down to this. Tomorrow he would claim the throne of England or he would die trying. Early on the morning of 22nd August, 1485, Henry advanced from over here towards Richard's much bigger army, drawn up on the ridge. Over here was Sir William Stanley with his men, watching as the battle unfolded. Stanley was keeping his options open. He only wanted to back a winner. Seeing Henry's army fragmented, Richard spotted his chance and charged. In the carnage, the two men fought nose to nose, and Henry's standard-bearer was cut down. And it was at this moment, probably as he saw Henry's standard begin to topple, that Sir William Stanley made his fateful decision. At the crucial moment, Stanley's army piled in on Henry's side. Richard, it was said, fought valiantly, like a true king. One of Henry's men reportedly heard him shout, I will die like a king this day, or win. And Richard himself was swept away. Richard III, the King of England, was viciously battered to death. Convenient truth of Richard III's reign, and to rework recent events to suit himself. And here's the written proof, the parliamentary record which shows how he did just that. In this record, Richard III is the usurper. Henry VII is the rightful king, putting the record straight. Richard III was referred to as the late Duke of Gloucester, and afterwards, indeed, and not of right, King of England. And his legislation is referred to as the act of false and malicious imaginations. But there was one thing in particular during this parliament that Henry did, which sent a ripple of unease through the Commons. He rewrote history. It simply consists of a date here. Now, the Battle of Bosworth was fought on the 22nd of August, 1485. But here... Henry VII has dated his reign. The 21st in Roman numerals, day of August, last, past. That's to say, the day before the battle was fought. We might ask, what's in a day? Well, by backdating his reign to the day before he beat Richard III and became king, Henry was effectively accusing everybody who had turned out for Richard III on the battlefield of treason. The commons was shocked, but in practice there was very little they could do about it. Henry had won his battle, and he was king. And here it is, enshrined in parliamentary record. With Parliament sewn up, Henry's next move would bolster his position further. a marriage to cement all his dynastic ambitions. It was a strategic partnership, the fulfilment of a pact made while he was in exile, the pact on which his invasion was founded. The previous 30 years had seen England torn apart in what would come to be known as the Wars of the Roses, the House of Lancaster, represented by the Red Rose, against the House of York, represented by the White Rose. Richard III's coming to the throne in 1483 divided the House of York. He imprisoned his young nephews, two princes, in the tower and proclaimed himself king. The princes were never seen again. Their supporters fled. This is Henry. It's what remains of his funeral effigy, which was paraded through the streets of London after his death dressed in his parliament robes and clutching his auburn sceptre of state. We can see his fine-boned features and the distinctive cast in his left eye. But this is also a face emaciated and ravaged by illness and stress. It's the face of a man who's never known a moment's peace. Henry's journey to fulfil his unlikely destiny brought him to Milford Haven on Sunday, the 7th of August, 1485. His small fleet appeared from the south and anchored quietly in Mill Bay. Henry's ships drop anchor here, and his men come ashore, and we can picture them heaving munitions onto the beach, cannons, horses coming through the surf. Henry wades ashore, and as he gets to this beach, to the sand, he sinks to his knees, raises his eyes to heaven, clasps his hands in prayer and says, Judge me, O Lord, and favour my cause. Henry would need all the help he could get. His army was a ragtag bunch of political dissidents and foreign mercenaries. A mixture of different accents filled the air. Henry had deliberately chosen this windswept and distant corner of Wales. He wanted to slip in undetected, giving him time to raise support in his Welsh homeland before facing Richard III's much larger army. And so this invasion really feels, more than anything else, it feels almost not like an invasion, it feels very, kind of, furtive and anxious. He knows that the odds are stacked against him. Henry made his way northwards to the homeland of his stepfather, Lord Stanley. The Stanleys, a powerful noble family, had half-promised Henry their support. The plan was to make for London, but Richard's army was now hot on his heels he had no choice but to turn and fight. On the eve of battle, Henry knew Richard's army was only a few miles away and that it massively outnumbered his own. It had come down to this. Tomorrow he would claim the throne of England or he would die trying. The cornerstones of his reign, his wife and heir, were gone, and Henry's crown was more at risk than ever. Old enemies had resurfaced. John de la Poole, who had instigated the first rebellion against Henry, had died 15 years before. But his younger brother, the Earl of Suffolk, was now a man, and at large on the continent, raising an army. Increasingly ill, suspicious, and unable to trust people, Henry saw conspiracy at every turn. But his resolve was unshakable. He would hang on to the crown, whatever the cost. If his subjects would not love him, they would be made to fear him. Henry was perfecting a very effective system of repression. His counselors were experts in extortion they forced people into bonds and debts to the king to guarantee their good behavior and find people vast, unpayable sums of money. For everyone, from nobles to merchants, it was like being on permanent bail. Anybody who broke the conditions of these bonds faced financial ruin. Now, betraying the king was not just unthinkable, it was unaffordable. This terrifying system was enforced by a shadowy tribunal known as the Council Learned in the Law. It would become the most notorious expression of Henry's rule. And the minutes of its meetings are recorded here in this book. It wasn't legally constituted, it wasn't a court of record, but it consisted of... A number of Henry's most powerful legal advisers, and this council answered directly and only to the king. It relied on information supplied by the regime's network of informers and spies who provided details about offenses committed or potential debts owing to the king. And what's interesting about the Council Learned it, is that it overrode a lot of the normal processes of government and of law. It might, for example, interrupt normal legal processes that were going on and pluck them out of the process, pluck them out of the system and haul them in front of this group of councillors. It acts with complete impunity. It is totally unaccountable. This was a process that struck fear and rage and frustration into those people who were caught up in its dealings. Of all the men associated with the council learned, Perhaps the most infamous and potent was a silver. Probably, as he saw Henry's standard begin to topple, that Sir William Stanley made his fateful decision. At the crucial moment, Stanley's army piled in on Henry's side. Richard, it was said, fought valiantly, like a true king. One of Henry's men reportedly heard him shout, I will die like a king this day, or win and Richard himself was swept away. Richard III, the King of England, was viciously battered to death. By mid-morning, it was all over. Henry's men moved busily about the battlefield, relieving the dead and dying of their valuables, piling bodies onto carts. On a nearby hill... Lord Stanley placed the dead king's circlet on Henry's head to the shouts of acclamation from his troops. Against all odds, Henry had achieved the impossible. This man, who had been a refugee and fugitive half his life, had won the crown of England. The Battle of Bosworth may have been over, but the real struggle was about to begin. For over half a century, no monarch had passed on the crown without turmoil. Building a dynasty would be a battle that Henry would fight for the rest of his life. I'm taking off my shoes because I'm about to tread ...on what is one of the most extraordinary pieces of medieval art. Not just in England, but in Europe. This is amazing. It feels astounding to stand here. Every single English king, and queen for that matter, since 138, has been crowned on this spot, precisely here. And it was here, on the 30th of October, 1485, that Henry VII was crowned. It was a glorious, triumphant occasion, and Henry must have felt as though he'd achieved almost the impossible back of a donkey without so much as a rag to cover his genitals and he knew that what had happened to Richard III could also happen to him Henry's claim to the throne was precarious his mother Lady Margaret Beaufort provided the only trickle of royal blood in Henry's veins The Beauforts were a great but illegitimate Lancastrian family, banned from ever claiming the throne. On the other side of his family, Henry's grandfather, Owen Tudor, a fast-talking Welsh servant, had secretly married Henry V's widow, Catherine, some 50 years previously. Not exactly the ideal pedigree for a king. Henry was born a nobleman, the Earl of Richmond, But his upbringing in exile had left him with no experience of governing. It had made him a sharp observer and a man who gave nothing away. For England to believe that Henry was the rightful king, he would need to behave like one. And that is exactly what he did. Parliament has met at Westminster for over 800 years. The official records of its debates, meetings and acts stretch back to the Middle Ages. In early November 1485, Henry VII's first Parliament met. He would use it to tackle the inconvenient truth of Richard III's reign and to rework recent events to suit himself. And here's the written proof, the parliamentary record which shows how he did just that. In this record, Richard III is the usurper, Henry VII is the rightful king, putting the record straight. Richard III was referred to as the late Duke of Gloucester And afterwards, indeed, and not of right, King of England. And his legislation is referred to as the act of false and malicious imaginations. But there was one thing in particular during this Parliament that Henry did, which sent a ripple of unease through the Commons. He rewrote history. It simply consists of a date here. Now, the Battle of Bosworth was fought on the 22nd of August, 1485. He accrued immense wealth, but his greatest legacy would only become clear over time. Running around the tomb is an inscription. Henry, it says, was the most rich, the most intelligent, the most dignified, the most glorious of kings and Elizabeth, his wife, was the most beautiful, the most chaste, and the most fruitful. Not only had their marriage been a happy one, but crucially, it had also produced children. The inscription concludes by saying that the land of England should count itself particularly lucky in the foremost of those offspring, the current king, Henry VIII, lucky old England. Henry VIII's reign would be turbulent in the extreme, yet it was also his father's greatest achievement. Henry VII had created our most famous, most notorious dynasty, the Tudors. Find out more about the life and death in the Tudor court season online at bbc.co.uk slash Tudors. And tomorrow night on BBC Two, with a taste of
0: life in that era, The Time Traveller's Guide to Elizabethan England is here at nine. More on that in a moment.
1: Sailing from France, an invading army is about to land in Wales. The leader of this army was a refugee, a fugitive, a man who had spent half of his 28 years on the run and who had barely a claim to the throne of England. His name was Henry Tudor. And as King Henry VII, he would create the dynasty that bore his name. The Tudors. But Henry VII remains obscure, eclipsed by the monarch he deposed, Richard III, by the glamour and notoriety of his wife-killing son, Henry VIII, and the charisma of his granddaughter, Elizabeth I. Yet Henry VII's is possibly the most extraordinary story of them all, with a hung bonds in the tilt-yard. He's clearly built physically very differently from his father, but also he thinks differently from him as well.
0: It's really just a matter of Henry VII being perfectly aware of the importance of chivalry and chivalric display. But he just wasn't willing to back that up with his own body, whereas his son couldn't wait to get involved personally.
1: Prince Henry's friends put on a thrillingly violent display of jousting pushing the sport to its boundaries in a brash disregard for the rule book. It was a performance that the king and his counsellors found alarming. But Prince Henry loved it. Caught up in the occasion, he eagerly chatted with gentlemen of low degree, his openness a sharp contrast with his father's remote detachment. So people started to see Prince Henry, even at the tender age of 15, as someone who would be a return to a traditional kind of king valuing honor and glory over money he would privilege noblemen above lawyers and accountants an entirely different proposition to his calculating and distant father imperceptibly allegiances were starting to shift in january 159 henry VII shut himself away at richmond His health was failing yet again, only this time there would be no recovering. At 11 o'clock at night, on Saturday, the 21st of April, 1509, Henry VII died. He had brought the kingdom to the brink of dynastic succession, almost, but not quite. This is a pen and ink drawing of the scene around Henry's bed in his privy chamber at the moment of his death. Here we can see one of the king's gentlemen ushers closing Henry's eyes at the moment of his death. And we can see here doctors holding urine flasks. Among those present were some of Henry's oldest and closest servants. In the past century the deaths of kings have brought violence and instability to England. And they were determined to make sure the same thing did not happen this time. Now, the 14 people in this picture were the only people who knew that Henry VII had died. They had a unique opportunity to order events to their own advantage, and this is precisely what they did. They agreed to keep the king's death a secret for two days until the court gathered for the Feast of the Garter on St George's Day. But in order to smooth the path of Prince Henry's succession, there would need to be scapegoats. People to take the rap for the wrongs that had been done in his father's name. It was here, on the 30th of October 1485, that Henry VII was crowned. It was a glorious, triumphant occasion, and Henry must have felt as though he'd achieved almost the impossible. This was an affirmation of his victory at Bosworth. It was a vindication of everything that he'd done, that he'd prayed for on the beach at Milford Haven. But there was perhaps a sense too of something else. After all, Henry had seen a crowned king, Richard III, killed, despoiled, mutilated, and trussed naked on the back of a donkey without so much as a rag to cover his genitals, and he knew that what had happened to Richard III could also happen to him. Henry's claim to the throne was precarious. His mother, Lady Margaret Beaufort, provided the only trickle of royal blood in Henry's veins. The Beauforts were a great but illegitimate Lancastrian family, banned from ever claiming the throne. On the other side of his family, Henry's grandfather, Owen Tudor, a fast-talking Welsh servant, had secretly married Henry V's widow, Catherine, some 50 years previously. Not exactly the ideal pedigree for a king. Henry was born a nobleman, the Earl of Richmond. But his upbringing in exile had left him with no experience of governing. It had made him a sharp observer and a man who gave nothing away. For England to believe that Henry was the rightful king, he would need to behave like one, and that is exactly what he did. Parliament has met at Westminster for over 800 years. The official records of its debates, meetings and acts stretch back to the Middle Ages. In early November 1485, Henry VII's first parliament met. He would use it to tackle the inconvenient truth of Richard III's reign and to rework recent events to suit himself. And here's the written proof a parliamentary record which shows how he did just that in this record Richard III is the usurper but now there remained only the true blood of Henry VII Queen Elizabeth and their firstborn son and heir Prince Arthur there remained not a drop of doubtful royal blood left in the kingdom The stage was now set for the most significant moment of Henry's reign so far, a royal marriage that had taken a decade to broker. His eldest son, Prince Arthur, was to marry a great Spanish princess, Catherine of Aragon. For Henry, it would be the culmination of everything he had fought for, setting the seal on his dynastic ambitions. and the celebrations would be glorious. On the early afternoon of Friday, the 12th of November, 151, Catherine's procession rode into the city across London Bridge. It was a dank, gray, drizzly afternoon, but what awaited her was spectacular. It was the first stage in the fortnight-long series of wedding celebrations that would be Henry's ultimate PR event, and it would showcase his chief source of political capital, his sons. London was in a carnival mood. The heaving streets were a riot of colour. Accompanying Catherine of Aragon on her procession through London was the king's younger son. The 10-year-old Prince Henry loved the limelight. Already, he was a boy with the popular touch. But one thing was clear to everybody, and to Catherine in particular, she was about to become part of something very special indeed. But for one onlooker, this lavish occasion provoked unease. Among the masses that lined the route, craning to catch a glimpse of the princess, was a young legal student called Thomas More. More later described the procession. He'd been enraptured by Catherine. She was so beautiful, he said, that words couldn't do her justice. But he ended on a slightly hesitant note. I do hope, he said, that these celebrations will prove a happy omen. It was as if, in their splendour and magnificence, that the festivities were somehow tempting fate. The wedding was a triumph, the Tudor myth was turning into reality, but as Arthur and Catherine left London to start their married life, it wouldn't be long before Thomas More's words would be fulfilled. Late on the 4th of April, 152, a boat docked at Greenwich, where the King and Queen were in residence. Aboard was a messenger who brought terrible news. Prince Arthur had caught the virulent sweating sickness and was dead.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.